You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. The man was obsessed with witches. In his play Macbeth, William Shakespeare features several encounters between the play's title character and three witches, otherwise known as the Weird Sisters. Their prediction that Macbeth will one day be King of Scotland inspires the murderous rampage that marks this play as one of the bloodiest in the Western canon. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain. When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. That will be ere set of sun. Where the place? Upon the heath, there to meet with Macbeth. Fair is foul and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and fill the air. Lest we mistake them for benevolent spirits, Shakespeare shows the witches first making a strange brew in a cauldron, and then calling upon Hecate, known in ancient Greece as the goddess of, among other things, crossroads, magic, sorcery, witchcraft, ghosts, and necromancy. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn, cauldron bubble. The presence of these supernatural characters and the dark tone of the play have earned it a reputation as cursed. And the tradition persists in the theatre that to say the play's title out loud is to invite misfortune. But Shakespeare wasn't the man obsessed with witches. His decision to include the witches was a tribute to his royal patron, King James I of England, also known as James VI of Scotland. James Stuart was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, whom Queen Elizabeth I famously had beheaded for treason in 1567, when James was just one year old. By the time he reached majority and became King of Scotland, James had already cultivated a deep distrust of his subjects. Although his name would become synonymous with witch trials in Scotland, James was not the first Scottish monarch to outlaw witchcraft. Under his mother Mary, the Scottish Witchcraft Act of 1563 made both the practice of witchcraft and consulting with witches offenses punishable by death. Despite the passage of this act, few people were tried and fewer still were actually convicted of witchcraft. That is, at least, until James. At the age of 23, James sailed to Denmark to marry his betrothed, the 14-year-old Princess Anne. Anne was supposed to have joined James in Scotland after their proxy marriage in August of 1589, but storms at sea forced Anne and her retinue to abandon the journey and make an emergency landing on the coast of Norway. James instead sailed to meet his bride. The two married in Oslo in November, and spent that winter and spring in Denmark. As idyllic as their honeymoon sounds, this trip would have grave consequences for James' subjects. You see, Denmark was a country already familiar with witch hunts. This sparked an interest in James, 
who took it upon himself to study and become an expert on witchcraft and the ways of witches. When James and Anne sailed back to Scotland in May of 1590, another series of storms threatened their ship, forcing them to shelter again in Norway for several weeks. Though the couple eventually landed safely in Scotland, not everyone survived. Jane Kennedy, a Scottish noblewoman and a former companion of Jane's mother, was crossing the River Forth on her way to meet James and Anne when her ferryboat was caught up in a storm, collided with another boat, and sank, drowning at least 60 passengers. The admiral of the Danish fleet defended himself by blaming the series of storms on the wife of a high official in Copenhagen whom he had offended. In July of 1590, authorities in Denmark arrested and tried Anna Koldings. When they tortured Anna and pressed her to name her accomplices, she named five other women, including the wife of the mayor of Copenhagen. Each woman confessed under torture to raising the storms that endangered James and Anne. A few even confessed that they had sent devils to climb the keel of the ship. By the end of the inquest, at least a dozen women had been tried, convicted, and burned as witches. When James heard the news of their confessions, he decided to look into the matter himself. For two years following his return to Scotland in 1590, James oversaw the North Berwick Witch Trials. These trials marked the first major witch hunt in Scotland after the Witch Act of 1563. Among the 70 people accused in these trials was Agnes Sampson, a healer and midwife known as the wise wife of Keith. When Agnes refused to confess, King James ordered that all the hair should be shaved off her body in the belief that this would reveal the privy mark that witches bore as a sign of their compact with the devil. Agnes was deprived of sleep and forced to wear a witch's bridle, a muzzle in an iron framework that wrapped around the head and pinned the tongue of the wearer. Officials then wound a rope around Agnes' head, which was then thrown, that is, twisted tighter and tighter. According to a pamphlet published in 1591 entitled News from Scotland, she continued almost an hour, during which time she would not confess anything until the devil's mark was found upon her privates. Then she immediately confessed whatsoever was demanded of her, and justifying those persons aforesaid to be notorious witches. Following her torture, Agnes confessed to summoning the storm that killed Jane Kennedy. With Agnes' confession, James became even more intrigued with the idea that witches were doing the devil's work in Scotland. He called another Agnes, Agnes Thompson, to appear before the royal court. Perhaps aware of the indignities Agnes Sampson had been forced to suffer, Agnes Thompson confessed freely. She testified that she was a witch and that she was, in fact, in league with the devil. She then described a fantastic gathering of witches on All Hallows' Eve, 
where over 200 witches drank, caroused, and danced together. With the threat of torture still hanging over all the accused, Agnes Sampson appeared again before King James, and in order to demonstrate that she, too, was truly a witch, and therefore there was no need to continue to torture her, recited the pillow talk exchanged between James and Anne on their wedding night. At this, James again summoned Agnes Thompson, who, not to be outdone, confessed that she and her fellow witches had summoned the storms that nearly sank James' ship off the coast of Norway. After this confession, James' amused curiosity turned to rage. By the end of the North Berwick witch trials in 1590, Agnes Sampson, Agnes Thompson, and dozens of others convicted of witchcraft had been burned as witches. A few managed to escape these initial trials with their lives, but not for long. Richard Graham, one of the more prominent among the accused North Berwick witches, shocked authorities in the spring of 1591 by naming the king's own cousin, Francis Stuart, Earl of Bothwell, among those witches who had conspired to kill James. James had his cousin arrested, but Bothwell managed to escape just a few months later. Despite a series of organized hunts to find him, he remained free, turning up in 1593 in northern England, enjoying the hospitality of Queen Elizabeth. In July of 1593, just five days after being stripped of his titles and lands, Bothwell had himself smuggled into one of the king's palaces and managed to make his way into the royal bedchamber, along with a small army of supporters. James, probably wisely, decided to pardon and restore his wayward cousin. Francis Stuart would be formally acquitted of witchcraft within the month, only to be exiled for treason two years later. A few years after his cousin's trial, James published Demonology, the full title of which is Demonology in Form of a Dialogue, divided into three books by the high and mighty prince, James. This philosophical dissertation in three volumes, presented in the form of a Socratic dialogue, examines the history and theory of necromancy, witchcraft, and other forms of black magic, and offers a comprehensive system for the classification of demons. Though intended to read as a justification for witch hunts, a hint of fear permeates James' treatise. His preface begins, The fearful abounding at this time in this country of these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches or enchanters, hath moved me, beloved reader, to dispatch in post this following treatise of mine, to resolve the doubting both that such assaults of Satan are most certainly practiced, and that the instrument thereof merits most severely to be punished. Demonology's two dialoguing characters are Philomathes and Epistemon, after the Greek names for a lover of learning and the branch of philosophy that governs knowledge. The first volume discusses the various branches of magical disciplines and link these to demonic influence, contrasting God's miracles with the devil's magic. The second volume reinforces the notion of witchcraft as a pact with the devil, and the third volume offers a kind of taxonomy of demons, dividing them into spectra, spirits that haunt places, 
Obsession, spirits that outwardly trouble people. Possession, spirits that inwardly trouble people. And fairies, spirits that cast illusions, provide prophecy, and transport their subjects. Finally, to cement his role as the Witch Hunter King, James had included with each printing of demonology a copy of News from Scotland, the pamphlet that detailed the proceedings of the North Berwick Witch Trials. Of course, demonology accompanied a new set of witch trials. But by 1597, the trials had taken on a different character. While the king personally oversaw the North Berwick witch trials, in which over 70 people were accused of witchcraft, the witch hunt of 1597 was larger in scope and began an era of regular witch trials throughout Scotland. Between March and October of 1597, several hundred people were accused of witchcraft, and around 200 are believed to have been convicted and executed. What was different about 1597? Why did these trials involve so many more accused and over such a wide area? One answer may lie in the conflict between King James and the growing Presbyterian Church, which sought to undermine James' religious and political authority. Or, possibly, it was the repeated outbreaks of plague and famine, which some Scots thought they could end by cleansing the land of witchcraft. While these may have contributed to the tensions surrounding the witch hunts of 1597, the widespread accusations had something to do with the way the court did business. In April, authorities arrested Margaret Aitken, often called the Great Witch of Balweary. As was customary, authorities put Margaret to brutal torture. In order to save herself, she pled guilty to the charges against her, but swore that she could be of use. She had, she said, the unique ability to recognize other witches. The court spared her life, and in return she identified numerous others for the court to arrest and torture. While his rule fanned the flames of witch hunts in Scotland, James would soon control an even larger realm. When Queen Elizabeth I died without an heir in 1603, the throne of England passed to James, and King James VI of Scotland also became James I of England. Unsurprisingly, by 1604, England enacted a new Witchcraft Act. While Elizabeth had passed a Witchcraft Act in 1563, the Act was relatively merciful, requiring imprisonment rather than death in cases where no harm could be proved. Of course, James did away with that. His new act, entitled The Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft, and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits, demanded death for anyone convicted of witchcraft, though burning at the stake was replaced by the more commonplace hanging. All this in the same year that James commissioned the translation that would become the King James Bible. Of course, stiffer penalties for witchcraft failed to rid James of his many political troubles, including attempts on his life. The most famous of these occurred in 1605, on the 5th of November, when a group of Catholic conspirators, including a man named Guy Fawkes, 
attempted to blow up the House of Lords, with the king, the queen, and the heir apparent all inside. As always, James examined the gunpowder plot and found demons. When William Shakespeare completed Macbeth in 1607, no one could have mistaken the references to James. In the play, the ambitious Macbeth assassinates the rightful king of Scotland and claims his crown. This is, in part, prompted by the witch's prophecy that one day Macbeth would be king. As murder begets murder, including the death of James' ancestor Banquo, Shakespeare nods to the gunpowder plot. One of the gunpowder conspirators had been caught with a copy of A Treatise of Equivocation, a work that taught Jesuit missionaries in England how to answer interrogators in a way that would not incriminate them. In Macbeth, Shakespeare comments on the idea. Faith, he is an equivocator that could swear in both the scales against either scale, who committed treason enough for God's sake, yet could not equivocate to heaven. King James must have loved this play. Shot through as it is with witchcraft, scheming women, and bloody punishments for traitors. Even after his death in 1625, James left a legacy of witch-hunting, especially in Scotland. In 1727, Janet Horne, an elderly woman who had begun showing signs of senility, became the last person to be executed for witchcraft in Scotland. The witch's stone in Dornoch is thought to mark the spot where she was executed. According to some scholars' estimates, between 1563 and 1727, it's possible that several thousand accused witches were killed in Scotland. By contrast, the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts saw only 19 executions. It seems clear that King James VI played an integral part in the Scottish witch hunts. In the midst of a troubled reign, James may have found it convenient to use witch trials to eliminate his more rebellious subjects, and to deflect from his own shortcomings as a monarch. But it's difficult to place all the blame on James' desire for power. Given the traumatic start to his reign as King of Scotland following his father's murder, and his mother's infamous beheading, it's perhaps understandable that James learned to fear what he couldn't control. Even the gunpowder plot was foiled, but witchcraft? Well, Macbeth shows us that even a king can be felled by a handful of witches. It's no wonder those in authority feared witchcraft. It was the one thing against which they felt truly powerless. King James' statutes were finally repealed with the Witchcraft Act of 1735, which, in a complete reversal, made it a crime for a person to claim that any human being had magical powers or was guilty of practicing witchcraft, thus ending witch hunts in Great Britain. The maximum penalty prescribed by the Act was one year in prison. The last person convicted under this Act was, fittingly enough, Scottish. Born in Perthshire, Victoria Helen McRae Duncan made a living as a medium conducting seances in London until, under the Witchcraft Act of 1735, she was arrested and convicted of fraudulent witchcraft. 
1944. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and help spread the word. You can subscribe to Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Original music this week is by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast, or on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.